Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David, Kieran Murphy and Ken Early are all here. Hey, Hello guys. there. I was a little concerned over the weekend that by Monday there wouldn't be much left to say about Ireland's defeat in Scotland. But luckily, Roy Keane is our assistant manager these days, so a juicy Monday morning story is never too far away. That's assuming you find tense conversations between football managers and journalists to be juicy stories. Oh, and judging well. by some of your responses on Twitter to me posting a story about this, is not actually the case. There were a few Zs, as in, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm asleep reading. Oh, people are so world weary these days, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, Roy Keane did not. It wasn't a one a one meal menu. I mean, there was basically a buffet from which you could select. Uh, yeah. There was the Everton stuff. Yeah. His stuff on Robbie Keane. The fact that he had got into a row with a couple of journalists. I mean, if there's if there's not something there for you, then I actually I'm not entirely sure that. You know, the sports news is your bag at all. Mm. There's just frankly. a lot of overstimulated people out there. I think. You know, here we are now, entertain us. They're the words of this generation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, see, it, seems that, um, it seems that Roy Keane uh, getting really angry, really angry, because I was sitting there watching it in boggle-eyed disbelief over a really very innocuous question. Uh, I, was, I was really, I, was, I wouldn't say surprised, though, because, I mean, you've heard about these type of things happening before. But I would say that you kind of got a sense of how those things might have happened right? when you saw what happened the other morning. I mean, the, the strange thing about it was that there wasn't really anything to it. It was just a sort of a, um, just a question. I mean, it's a simple question. Asked, sorry, Roy, I want to ask this because it was touched upon earlier. I expect to get the stare, but I'm going to ask anyway. Martin was asked before the game about the incident, as in the hotel incident last week. Uh, he said it was a distraction and he moved on. I'm just thinking, the last six months, I'd like your thoughts on this between the Celtic link, the Villa link, the book situation, and the incident last week. And there's no, it's actually not a question because it hasn't been completed by the time off. Roy Keane jumps in. I'm not going to get, what gives you the right to ask me anything yeah. if you want to ask me? And it kicks off a little bit from there. People can read all the, the rest of the transcript. It's in the Irish yeah. Times and elsewhere. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to presume to tell Roy Keane how to speak to the media. 
he's probably one of the best at it there is. I mean, and judging by his his profile, the fact that you know his public appearances are like crack to the media, <laughs> uh, he he knows a thing or two about how to how to say interesting stuff uh, to cameras and microphones. Uh, and, and no cameras in this instance. This is a daily's uh, press briefing, and no microphones other than those used to obtain recordings for transcription. It's not fair to play audio recordings of these uh, little sessions, which is why you're not listening to Roy Keane talking right now. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he could have been quite easy to answer that question a couple of ways. Number one, already said I'm not answering the question, sorry. Already said, because it was, it was brought up in the previous, the, the, the TV and radio press conference, and he said, not commenting on that. And that was it. Yeah. Could have done that again. Could have said, well, you know, I don't know, you maybe, maybe have to ask Martin if he thinks it's a distraction. Well, he did actually say that. That was one of his answers. That was one of the things he said. 37 questions followed to the journalist over the following three minutes. There were 37 questions directed by Roy Keane at one and then a second journalist who, who joined in. Um, listening back to the tape, one of the things that you notice is the, you can hear the clacking of the photographer. You know, clack, clack, clack. All thread, and this was, I think, in, it had come to the 18th minute, the 17th or 18th minute of this of this briefing, and it's really just a man sitting at a desk. Even if it is, even mm. if the man is Roy Keane, um, I mean, his beard at the moment, just to let you know, is in that. Uh, you know, it's 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 pretty heavy stubble now. You can see the, the you can see the sort of um, the full sideburn outline. You know, general burn side. You know that sort of pattern. It's the chin, the jaw is white, and then the rest of it is still dark. So you can you get that sort of walrus uh, pattern there. I, I think over time you would be able to actually do a stop motion animation of Roy Keane growing a beard. Uh, in mm. yeah, you, you you look really bored. Sorry about this. No, no, no. Please continue. But you can hear uh, that the photographer has, has more or less stopped taking photographs. And then suddenly, I don't know, it's just something about the... He senses the change in tone in the room. Suddenly you hear that uh, that camera is snapping right, after, away like good after, <laughs> after minute three, the photographer has gotten pretty much all that he possibly could from this particular setup. But for some reason, minutes uh, 18 to 21 um, contained a hell of a lot more of these. Now, look, I mean, it was it was really just... It's it's the kind of loss of temper which well, the, ar- the, the, the argument, the counter argument to that is that if you you're saying that he has already said I'm not talking about that, mm-hmm. then uh, just as a, as a, okay, I know he's in a position of responsibility and y- you have to deal with questions that might annoy you, uh, but when you've already said you're not talking about it and you're asked it again, this happens in press conferences <laughs> quite a lot, and it, it I, I can see as a human being why Roy Keane might get a little bit exasperated by it. I've, I I've, I've, I've answered it. I actually am unsure why he I. Well, I, I couldn't well, see. That's well, that's the thing about it. I couldn't see how he could get that exasperated. Yeah. exasperated well, I've answered it already. Maybe it was every press conference in the history of his his management career all coming into into the equation. Yeah, as opposed to one particular question. That's the thing. That's the thing. And you wonder when he sees people whether he's, whether he just he's he just this sees. blob of journalism in the shape of this one particular question. Like I'm, I'm reminded of Diego Lugano talking about uh, how Luis Suarez did not bite Giorgio Chiellini. Mm. Did you see what happened today? Or did you see what happened in previous years? <laughs> that was Diego Lugano. And I think Roy Keane saw what happened in previous years at that moment. He, it's as though he was... I mean, where did the mention of Mick McCarthy come from? Yeah, at that, the that end? shows that... <laughs> that, <laughs> that I, I, I actually found that the most interesting. I'll tell you where. I'll tell you where it came from. It came from the fact that 
the journalist he was directing that to, who I think was Paul Lennon from the Star, is essentially somebody who he would have remembered seeing around the same time as Saipan, Mick McCarthy, simply because Paul Lennon was one of the journalists who was there at that time on that trip. So he literally is like, I see this face I associate with a, with that time. And therefore, you know, he just brings up, oh, here's one of Mick's golfing pals, Paul Lennon, as far as I know, not a golfing buddy. Of <laughs> Possibly has played golf. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, he did. He, he, he was the second journalist in question. There, were, there was Philip Quinn was doing most of the, the questioning. And then there was yeah. another interjection towards the end. Yeah, that's... Yeah. The fact that he mentioned Mick McCarthy, that he still has this feeling that McCarthy somehow this comes back to McCarthy and his relationship. This is a with big him. conspiracy. He's like uh, the Moriarty behind, uh, like the Irish press pack. Yeah, McCarthy's <laughs> the spider at the center of the Irish yeah. we, sports we, journalism web. Yeah, Keane walks out of the room, and five minutes later, everyone in the room is standing in a in a, in a circle around a, an iPhone, which is switched to speaker mode. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just hear coming about. How'd it go? <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished, boss. <laughs> so, something along those lines, anyway. But, well, lad. Uh, but, uh, so, so we're all, I mean, I, there's, there is no conspiracy. There, there was no conspiracy. Um, but I, I think sometimes Roy King does, he feels a bit embattled. And that's a fascinating thing. How could, how could he feel that way? How, how could he get so exasperated? I mean, I heard when you were, you were saying their own, maybe it is irritating to be asked the question again. He's done enough of these to know why he's being asked it again in, in the circumstances. Yeah, and it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate topic to bring up. You can answer a question that. with a little tone of irritation, you know. You consider that, well, you know, I've already said I, I, I didn't want to comment on that. And, you know, thanks very much for your question. You can do that. You can get your message across. But this was like a kind of, um, he was, there was a certain abandon with, with, with which the way he kind of pursued. And then it was question after question. It was, you could say, a Socratic method of argument. This is how Roy Keane argues. He hits you with question after question after question. And you're like, but, uh, well, uh, you, you think you can come in here? You think you can get an answer? You think you're entitled to an answer from me? You think I have to answer to you? You know, and that's the way it goes. Question after question after question after question until you're bulldozed. And you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if he answered the question. I'm not quite sure what he was so angry about. Yeah. But he was angry. We'll talk to Emma Malone on this show. Martin O'Neill is doing a press conference later on today as well, Ken. So we'll get Martin's view in the football podcast uh, this afternoon. The game itself, though, I've got to ask about that before we move on. How did you, how did you handle the occasion? And you were in Glasgow. Were you like the Ireland players slamming your laptop on the ground, stomping on it, mashing the keypad? Or were you more of a Stephen Naismith, Sean Maloney type? Sure, adrenaline levels, levels were high, but yeah. you were able to just slow your mind down, calmly type out some clever long words. Yeah, Naismith, the Iceman. Um, oh, I mean, Maloney as well. It was, it, was a, it was actually a brilliant goal. It was one of those where I was sitting kind of directly in line between sort of Maloney and the post. So I was able to see how the ball kind of swerved out and swerved in just inside the post. You could kind of, it was one of those, you, you, you kind of, yeah, I think that's going in. Yeah, that's it. Um, uh, it was it was an amazing atmosphere. Actually, it was brilliant. I really loved the game. I mean, it was a terrible match. <laughs> it was terrible, but it was great. It was it was great to watch. I mean, just there were so many violent fouls in it. You know, I mean, the Scots were really ruthless. I thought. Oh, the Scots. Oh yeah. But I think the Irish oh. team were worse. Hendrick, Stephen Quinn. Stephen Quinn. Well, Stephen, well, Stephen Quinn. In fairness, he was really <laughs> he was real Notre Dame. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they do actually have a guy I was at a Notre Dame game they actually have a fighting Irish leprechaun who after every touchdown he's over it with the hardcore fans and he there's some ridiculous chant or song goes up and he gets thrown 20 feet up in the air and he's got his little Stephen Quinn Stephen Quinn was got a, well, he wanted some uh, he turned I, to those I was just surprised that 
you know, after all of the talk all week of the match from 1987, that the players would decide to basically reenact football from the 1980s <laughs> yeah. as a kind of homage to... Yeah, I'm surprised at one stage, Murph, that the ball... that you know, I, I can't believe, for example, that Stephen Ward wasn't allowed to roll the ball back to David Ford, who could pick it up. Yeah, and, and the ref would have just left that go because he was leaving, he was leaving a lot yeah. of the tackles go. It w- Seats should have been ripped out to ensure that the terraces at either end. There were lots of, um, you know, elbows and sort of there were things the referee missed. I mean, Scotland only, I think Scotland ended with two yellow cards. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, I suppose you're always going to get a certain home team effect there. But, you know, Scotland were really, really... Um, it was it was it was balshy. As Chris Coleman said, Wales need to be balshy. They're balshy, and they I think they kind of steamrolled us to an extent. You know, I don't think we we really stood up to it that well. And we, I mean, we never usually control midfield. We certainly didn't in this game. And you know, there was there was a lot of interesting stuff coming out. But I have to say, Robbie Keane wasn't happy about it quite clearly. No, there was a bit on the TV coverage. I don't know if you had a chance to, to watch that at all, where you actually see the moment that he's bouncing into Celtic Park, uh, into Celtic Park before the game and then is taken by the arm by Martin O'Neill into this side room and you don't really see what goes on in there, mm. but you're, um, the assumption is that that's when he told him. You know, I don't think so, actually. No, you might, you might have talked to him th- before. Yeah, because I think he told him the previous night. I think he said, he said anyway to some Sunday journalists that that's when he told him. Um... Uh, so, so I guess I guess he knew about it. I mean, I'd be surprised, frankly, if, if O'Neill hadn't. You can't just drop Robbie Keane. You know, the dressing room, that type of situation. You can't do that to Robbie Keane. Seriously. I mean, remember, that was... The, in Rio Ferdinand's books, it's one of the big, big... That was the moment when he decided, right, I'm... Not that I'm going to do everything in my power to get David Moyes to sack, because that would be totally unprofessional. However, I really don't have that much faith left in him as a manager, if you know what I'm saying. Um, was a moment at which, in front of the squad, uh, Moyes told him he was going to be dropped for Munich, game against Bayern Munich that uh, he thought he was going to be playing for. And he just sort of told him, in front of everyone, there you go, you know, oh, by the way, I'm just looking for someone with a bit more pace. So, And, uh, you know, he was crushed. I mean, Robbie Keane, not having missed a, a game for 13 years, not, not having missed a competitive game that he was fit to play for since the game against Estonia in June 2001, he expects to play... And if you're going to tell him in front of everyone just before kickoff, that's humiliating for him. So I'm sure he told him. And Keane said today that that Robbie reacted brilliantly uh, and actually was really warm in his praise. Roy Keane really seems to rate Robbie. He, he said he's one of the best professionals I've ever come across. Yeah, I, wonder, th- I wondered if he was insulting Niall Quinn to some extent. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Can you? Can you? <laughs> can, what was the Niall Quinn? Well, the, the question because Robbie Keane, Robbie Keane, speaking after the game in the mix zone to Stephen Doyle, had said, um, "Well, you know." I'm not, I'm not fucking Niall Quinn or Shane Long. And this was this is what he said, which is very rare for a player to to actually swear in a mix zone. You know, it was, it was kind of a bit out of the blue. Uh, he said, uh, oh, "Niall Quinn or Shane Long, you know that's not my game. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I'm five for ten. That's not my game. Shane Long, by the way, is like five for ten and a half. You know, <laughs> but we all know he can kind of run yeah. fast and jump high. Um, uh, you know, if if you so if you want to play one up front, yeah, that's not my game. If you want to play two up front, you want to try and score goals." Yeah, that's my game, you know. Now, I thought that was interesting because he's he's opposing the ideas of playing one up front and trying to score goals, right? They're opposites in his in his view of it. And he's also saying that if you're playing two up front, play me because that's my game. But Arnold were playing two up front. They were. They had Walters and Long. And what did Roy Keane say about that? This was brought up. And essentially, just as soon as the he said, I'm not Niall Quinn, and Keane just goes, well, he's not better than Niall Quinn. 
you know, just immediately, <laughs> which is why I thought, is that actually a jibe at Nalquin or is it praising, you know, a pat on the head for Robbie Keane? I can't really tell. I suppose ingeniously it accomplishes both. Good news in the rugby front, folks, after putting the Georgians to the sword, but number three in the world. Huh? That's all right. Number three in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, if we finish... If <laughs> I didn't quite get the... Uh, well, get if the we were to finish over. third in the World Cup, that would be good. You know, well, we are going to... Clearly, that's going the most likely the scenario, yeah. Yeah. Now, that you know, the, I, I'm just a little concerned on that, you know, if we were to, you know, bring this to the... To the you know the, its natural conclusion, there wouldn't be a World Cup at all. That we you know that we wouldn't. But why bother playing Just the going World on Cup the rankings at if all the times? New Zealand are so always important. the world champions. Yeah, well, I mean that's probably what's going to happen for the next eight years anyway. So, well, why not? Why not sign up for this? Why not try and scrap the World Cup now and take our third place? The last time we were riding this high was eight years ago, two thousand six. Was also the last time we had a clean sweep of these internationals in November, and we're one win away this time. Matt Williams and Jerry Thornley are ready to go. Jerry, thanks very much for popping into the studio. Not at all. Pleasure, always. We're third in the world. Murphy mm. seems very underwhelmed by this statistic. Uh, he thinks it has no relevance whatsoever. Is it? Um, Schmidt kind of fobbed it off as well. He said, ah, it's nice. It's a bit of reward for hard work. But um, in, in a way, could it actually be a bit of a millstone around the neck now? Yeah, I, I would think he's actually privately a little bit unhappy about it. Right. He doesn't want the dizzy heights of third just yet. Remember the last time Ireland rose to third in the world after going through November 206 uh, unbeaten. And rose the third award a year after the World Cup, and we all know what happened next. So yeah, yeah I think I know expectations. Um, it's it's ironic. He hates them particularly, and yet nobody generates them more than he does. And but it's true. I don't think for some reason the Irish psyche. I mean, obviously they have to get used to being having high expectations of them, and to something like being third in the world, and just let let it sit easy with them and deal with becoming maybe favourites, slight favourites at home to Australia next weekend, stuff like that. I mean, it's his Leinster team dealed with, dealt with this for five years and became serial high achievers. Um, but it is historically something, for example, that sits far easily in the heads of Welsh rugby players. You know, they, they get a whiff of success or whatever and they just, their chests expand and they, they go with it. I think it might have something to do with their rich heritage and all the names they've had throughout their 70s and 80s and 90s, the great Lions players. So Irish rugby just is not as inundated with great success stories from the past, like waiting whatever it was, a number of years into that Grand Slam in 09. So it just doesn't seem to sit as easily. But ultimately, it's third in the world and it does reflect very well, actually, on what they've done for the last year. Is it time to embrace race this kind of thing Matt um, it, it's a tough one uh, on, on, on look I, I personally think down down here and I think it's the right attitude you know they're not really that concerned with it it's what what cups and silverware you have in the tro- in the in the trophy cabinet that really count um, and there's a whole lot of uh, formulas and, you know, uh, pi r squared h minus 26 that gives you this uh, number. And really, I mean, I think it's fantastic, and I think it should be. I think it should be taken as something that's a positive that Ireland's up in at number three. But uh, I, I think it's about what, what's the what's the cup you have, you know? And they've got the Six Nations Cup, and the, the, I don't know if there's a cup between South Africa. There's certainly a cup between Australia. They're the sort of things that uh, that matter. And then it's it's saying, well, we want to win the William Webb Ellis Trophy. I think you've got to be ambitious and to say that if you're down eight and nine in the world, you're not going to win the William Webb Ellis Trophy. That's just not going to happen. And and if you're three or four or two around thereabouts, you you got a good chance. So I, look, I. I don't think it's a big thing, but uh, I also don't think it's something that we should shy away from. Jerry, I'm not sure how you read Joe Schmidt afterwards. I felt that uh, certainly in, the, in his TV interview, he was hugely positive about the performance, even the first half, which mm. was interesting. I, I'm, I'm 
uh, throw it out there that if that had been the the first choice Irish team making the sort of mistakes that happened, he, he might have been comfortable enough to uh, be quite critical in the post-match interviews. He has been in the past, but maybe he wanted to give these guys confidence. He didn't want to come down too hard on, on any sort of mistakes. He wanted to just accentuate the positives because these are the people that he needs to step into the breach. Definitely, I think there was a. It was, a, it was he was trying to be positive for those reasons that you just outlined. He was it was uber positive, unlike Joe, because we know how critical he is of mistakes normally, even publicly. I mean, most even coaches publicly, don't ne- yeah. want to necessarily get into that, but he's he has no problem. Yeah, I mean, and and in private, you wonder was he saying to them? maybe the same, maybe the same. I mean. You heard that great story about the Conor Murray cross kick for Tommy Bowe's try, and apparently in the dressing room afterwards, he goes up to Conor Murray, uh, good kick, Tommy, but that's meant to, Conor, that's meant to land on Tommy's hand, it's not meant to bounce. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way he is, you know, he's just very demanding, very exacting. I think also, though, he was making allowances for the fact that there are 13 changes. You look at New Zealand, they made 13 changes for the game against Scotland, and they looked quite shabbily ordinary, you know what I mean? Even Dan Carter didn't look that great. It's very difficult to make 13 changes, effectively put a new team together and expect it to gel cohesively and he knew there were going to be mistakes and there were and I do take his point very often a rugby team will dip its bread in the last 20 minutes based on on what they did in the first hour even though there might be much tangible reward on the scoreboard very often the rewards don't come until the end Have any of the players pushed themselves into contention? Do you think Felix Jones has been mentioned maybe on the wing? I think Shane Horgan suggested that could happen Rickard Strauss maybe um, putting his agenda forward um, or was this just a, reserve, a sort of reserve team get, getting them as, as much experience as possible? Wouldn't be surprised if Jones muscles his way in somehow. He'll definitely cemented his place in the 23, that's for sure. He could force his way in the wing. I thought uh, it would be difficult for Rickard Scrouse to uh, shift Sean Cronin because Cronin gives such ball-carrying ballast and in the absence of Sean O'Brien and Keane Healy, that becomes an even more important component in the pack's play. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, depending on Jared Payne's fitness, if it goes back to the same 23 that featured against South Africa. Matt, does it look like Ireland are finally developing a bit of depth in the international team? You know, I think it's it's very cyclical. Um, you know, I wouldn't, t- you know, I'd just like to keep a, a little bit of proportion here mm. that uh, Georgia are hardly a world power. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think uh, having said that, as I said in my piece in the Irish Times, I think it's fantastic to give... Dominic Ryan a chance to give all these young guys a go and and to look at them and say well how do they go against this opposition and you know and you do learn things uh, you know the Georgians will scrummage you off the planet because they uh, they have so many players especially their their front rowers playing in uh, top fourteen in France so you do learn things from this uh, and and there's so few of these games where you can blood young players. Every game is so important now. And we, we talked about earlier the rankings, you know, and this is important. You know, it's important to, uh, to marketers. It's important to the, to the IRFU and they go out and say, oh, we're number three in the world. We want a bit more money out of you. And there's the pressure back on Joe. But at some point, you've got to put those young guys in and say, get against that old hard nut over there. He's going to beat you up. You're going to get done and you're going to learn from it, but you'll be a better player, so I can put you out again. Those days in modern rugby are so few, and so it was very valuable that way. You're not going to get all 15 of those guys step up into the top 15, but it's another step on their development, another step forward in their progress. Some will step forward, and some will say, well, look, you're, you, you're not going to step forward. So if we can come out of this with 25, 26 players, you know, that we think, look, these 26 could handle test match rugby, our, that would be a big step. Our problem is, to me, looking at it, certainly the front row, when we have our top front row in, it's as good as pretty much anything in the world. When we're one down, 
we're in a, in serious trouble. And we'd probably start saying that around the second row as well. Um, there's probably one or two others that we've probably got three or three, you know, really competent second rows. A bit more better in the back row. How do we leave Aunt Red now? I don't know because Connor Murray's so good. You know, but we start going through the team. That's what you've got to do. And it's when you get those challenges that you get the internal competition and that makes the best team, the top, top team better. So, look, it's a positive day. I wouldn't say it's a great day, but a positive day. No, and it's one of those days that as soon as it's out of the way, you're looking for, forward to the next game, which is Australia. Michael Cech, I didn't seem too impressed with their performance against France, even though they pushed them close to the wire. Matt, what, what do you make of... Has there been enough of a bounce back? Everyone was expecting that from this Michael Cech team. And not so much a bounce back, but a, a willingness to and an eagerness to impress their new coach. Is that there? I think it is, but they're they're just the classic team that's between two stools at the moment, and and you know it's it's I I, I think uh, your listeners have to realise I'm reasonably negative about Australian rugby at the moment, as even though I'm exceptionally passionate about it, I'm and I'm not negative about Michael. I mean, Michael should not be there. We should not be dealing with this. You and Mackenzie should be there, and in two or three years' time, Michael's time would have come. We would have had a good progression plan, maybe four years' time. Uh, and the Waratahs would have gone on to more strength and all this sort of wonderful progression that we've had in Irish rugby where, where Leinster played exceptionally well and Munster before them, we would have had this going through in New South Wales rugby and, and we've lost all that. And the team is just sort of stepping forward with uh, Ewan and they weren't bad under Ewan. This is the, the, they had a bad game against Argentina, but they were pretty good the rest of that championship, very good at times. And now Michael wants, as he as is his right, he has a different systems and different patterns and the team are taking uh, time to adjust and at the international level really good players will rip you apart uh, I would say one thing that um, <clears throat> I think we've seen the emergence of a potentially fantastic player in uh, Teddy Thomas, the the Racing Metro uh, dreadlock winger who scored an absolutely spectacular try against Australia his footwork was truly mesmerising and I think that was a great plus. And Australia fought back as they have done in every game this year. But it wasn't enough. But that, that revolves around their defence. There was some exceptionally poor defence. Um, and, and France were, to give them their credit, a bit like Ireland the week before, their defence was absolutely resolute. It was quite uh, quite a step up. I went to watch them in, uh, in Sydney in June and um, they were nothing short of appalling. And I've got to use that word. They were appalling. And I came away... So downheartened about French rugby, but uh, to to their credit, I thought they were pretty pretty good on Saturday, and Australia weren't good enough. That's actually the thing on the weekend for me that of this November series. You hope it's a flash in the pan, and the French have done this before. But outside of Ireland, by far the most worrying development from an Irish viewpoint is the sudden resurgence of the French team. Only the French can do this. They've been appalling for years. Um, they produced one decent performance, ironically, in the last three years, and that was against Ireland. Ireland did really well to win in Paris to get that Six Nations title. They got a glimpse of what a French team can do when it's in the mood and focus and the top 14 isn't draining its players. And Philippe Saint-André is actually giving them a little licence to play rugby and not all this percentage rugby that he's always played with his teams up until then. But whether it's... Apparently Serge Blanco is a little bit of an influence of the ticket now, but they just they blooded seven new players, came up with a whole new game plan, new way of playing the game, let it rip, and they can do this because the numbers they have. So 
the, you know, the, the thought always was that the World Cup c- can't come soon enough cause to catch the French and you really wanted Saint-André to be there but they look as if they're undergoing a serious resurgence this autumn yeah. sadly well listen let's worry about that in, uh, in a couple of months but we, we, they're actually the, they loom largest yeah, um, because that's, that's the true. World Cup pool game and that's the and there's one of the six big Six Nations games so actually those French, the French games are probably going to just define Joe Schmidt's era more than any other Matt I know you think that the actually the Australia game is a huge one in terms of Joe Schmidt's era you say at the end of your column it's the most important November international of the last decade in Irish rugby defeat and Ireland will remain a team capable of one-off wins with a kicking game in the wet can you expand on that? Yeah well, it's pretty uh, look I think if you go back over history the great wins even you know let's take the last 10 years let's go back to uh, when Dricky was captain uh, f- for the first time against Australia all their wins against the Southern Hemisphere with the exception of one or two at Lansdowne Road uh, against South Africa were one-off wins in the wet. They're done in Dublin. They're not done on the road. And there were a lot of things wrong about that win against South Africa. There were a lot of great things. We spoke about it last week. And after our conversation, I went back and watched the tape again. And, you know, really our go forward was appalling. Um, You know, we spoke about no offloads. And there were no offloads because you can only offload the ball when your footwork gets you past... The, the defender, the defender has to make a low tackle on you and your hands are free. There was no offloads because they were never, they never even looked like it. There was no go for it. There was no carry. And, you know, that's bad. And unless they get a number of other things right, besides their magnificent defence, I'm not taking anything away from their defence, I'm not taking anything away from a magnificent kicking game and the enthusiasm of their chase, which was uh, of the highest order, there were other very worrying areas. And... Australia will um, are a very different animal to South, South Africa, and Australia will exploit that, even in their weakened state. And I think it's even more difficult that Australia might put Quade Cooper in and and uh, and Will Genya this week. And I think that those two, when they came on in France, looked quite cranky and did some good things. And I think those two uh, coming in in their current position, which is number two in both positions, and in Genia's case, possibly number three if there weren't injuries, they could really do Ireland some damage in those cases. Uh, and if, if Ireland, let's, let's say Ireland lose that game, what, what does that give us? That they're still only capable of one-off games on a wet day. And it was a wet day when they beat Australia in Eden Park. It, and Jerry and I have had these conversations over the years and, and, you know, perhaps over a point, Jerry disagreed with me, but I try to explain to him that, that the Southern Hemisphere guys, apart from the, the South Africans and the Australians, they've got no experience of playing the wet. They'll be – those guys, this year in, in Sydney, there would have been one half-wet day, uh, and these guys don't know how to tactically play it. And the South Africans, especially a team that's made up very much from the high veld, are very similar, like that team was. And they, they – that even though it wasn't raining at the time, it was a wet day, and that – brings levels teams out. So I'm not trying to talk down Ireland, but what I'm saying is there's a, there's a reality here. They have to back up their games. There has to be a win followed by another good win. If you have a win and then you don't do it, that's what we've always done. That's what Ireland has always been capable of, this one-off, magnificent, inspirational victory that lifts us all and we go and have a couple of points and the next week we get done again. That can't happen this week. It can't happen. And if it does, it's a problem because this, this, this weekend, the pressure is going to be on Ireland. There is no pressure on Australia. 
They've got a, they've got a new coach. They're not playing particularly well. They're coming to Dublin. Australians love being in Dublin. Australians are the most comfortable of all the countries coming to Dublin because most, you know, half the team will have Irish ancestry. We're so similar in so many ways. The Australians love getting to Dublin. On this trip, they're all saying, wait to get to Dublin, wait to get to Dublin. So they're going to be relaxed and happy. And the pressure is going to be totally on Ireland. Yeah, they were a little so too relaxed is. last year, Matt, but it worked out quite well for them. It turned out this this little uh, little midweek session. But no, it's a really interesting point that Matt talks yep. about there. Uh, what do you think, Jerry? Just the, 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 that's a lot of pressure that uh, if Ireland feel it in that way that that Matt outlines there. That this is actually it's bigger than just uh, November internationals. It's kind of a it's a statement, and I think all the players accept over the years that they haven't been consistent enough. They've always been ca- capable of one-off performances and specific types of performances. Would you put that much pressure on the Irish team this weekend? No, it is a bit of a problem for Irish rugby, and it's, it's part of the reason perhaps that no Irish team has ever made the semi-finals of a World Cup, because we can all think of the World Cup, like the French, there have been occasional high, emo- highly driven, emotionally charged performances. But the problem is when you dip that deeply into the well, where do you go a week later? And... French, even more spectacularly so than Ireland, have not been able to do so, and they've never won a World Cup, which they should have done, and certainly Ireland should have reached a semi-final out of seven attempts and never have done. And you often think that the the Heineken Cup format really suits the Irish psyche, because you can peak for a couple of games, ease off, peak for a couple of games, ease off, peak, and then the knockout, even better, they come along every five or six weeks and just peak for one-off games. And it can suit the whereas backing them up through something like four pool games and then one or two or three knockout games after that is not something the Irish rugby has proven itself to be able to do. Viewed in that context, I would tend to actually agree with Matt's point in the sense that for Ireland to go to the World Cup with any kind of credibility about themselves, in their own minds, most of them, that's the most important place, never mind what the rest of us think of, but in their own minds, they go there as credible contenders. They, would, they actually had to beat South Africa, when you look back on it. If they hadn't, it would have been an opportunity lost. And that would have been five years and counting since a home win over one of the Southern Hemisphere Big Three, which is far too long. And three years and counting since a win, that one-off win in Eden Park in the rain, which I accept Matthew's point. So yes, they almost had to beat South Africa for their own credibility, because now they've, they came within one play of beating the best side in the world a year ago. They backed that up by beating the second best side in the world. Um, and now if they were to beat Australia, one of the top four sides or five sides in the world, and as well and having taken on the Southern Hemisphere big three coming within play beating the best and beating the other two realistically they can go to the World Cup next year as contenders in their own minds I would accept Manny's point to a degree it partly depends on the performance it was a wonderful performance and a wonderful game of rugby and they lose narrowly that changes things but if they were to lose to Australia it certainly would um, it would affect a lot of the feel-good factor generated by the South African win and would leave a sour aftertaste in the mouth from November and it would carry through the Six Nations. So yeah, there is a lot of pressure on this Irish team to win and except this point, there's comparatively little pressure on the, on the Australians. Do you think Ireland will win, just lastly? I think um, it's hard to tell this far out, but yes, I possibly do. Um, although I think that Australia are going to ask altogether different questions of the Irish defence than South Africa ever did. I, I watched them closely in the last two games, even against Wales as well. They've got a capacity from 1 to 15, skill sets, keeping options off the ball, work rate off the ball, playing fat in the game line. I mean, at one point um, in the Welsh game, uh, Kepu drove up and offloaded out of the tackle to James Slipper. This is a tight head to a loose head. You don't often see that in many sides in the world. I'd say themselves and the All Blacks are possibly the only two, and maybe the French on a given day. So they will ask an awful lot of different questions of the Irish team. I see them scoring tries. I think Ireland will have to improve their go-forward game that Matt says and score tries themselves. But I would imagine they will, and Joe will find a way. You know, the Joe Schmidt factor, you can never discount that. It's a little bit far out from the game now, but I would imagine they would be marginal favourites, and they, and they should win. Matt? I agree with Jerry. I think it's really on a knife edge. Uh, certainly the talk here in Sydney is uh, from a couple of boys I 
you know, I, I would trust their uh, sources is that while we don't have the uh, – Australia doesn't have the resources to pick a second 15, it will be a weakened side because their main purpose of this tour is Twickenham the next week because they have England in their pool in the World Cup and they want to win in, in London. Mm. So I think Ireland have a great chance. But, again, the Australians will go into this with no fear. And it's a bit like Ireland, you know, against South Africa. Ireland went into that game with no fear. That's when they're at their best. And I think the Australians are the same too. Yep. Okay. Matt Williams, great stuff. Jerry, thank you. Cheers. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. We haven't talked about Scotland there, almost beating the All Blacks, which would have completed the greatest sporting weekend in that country's history. Mm-hmm. They, put, they push them pretty close there. But poor old Andy Murray, I don't know if you noticed uh, the rather ignominious end to Murray's season over the last few days. Beaten 6-love, six 6-1 six by Roger Federer. Last, a very nerdy 6-love, six 6-love. Six he hadn't lost mm. uh, by what they call a double bagel, Murph, those tennis folk. A double bagel. He hadn't uh, mm. suffered one of those Big bullet here. <laughs> hadn't suffered one of those. Uh, Why is it called double bagel? Since I don't know. Well, I, because it's too... Two zeros, two, two big zeros. fat zeros. Oh, right. Vaguely shaped. You could, you could call a lot of things, Ken, I suppose. Double mm. hula hoop, double <laughs> donut. Double Viscount. <laughs> well, they don't have the hole in the middle, you see, the Viscount. Yeah, it's not going to uh, work. Of course, his zero but, does have a hole in the middle. Uh, he, he avoided that. He was 6 low, 5 low down and managed to win a game. Uh, ended up still losing quite Roger hum- totally threw that game as well, by the way. Out of respect for Andy Murray and Roger's legion of British fans, he decided not to humiliate He headed Andy home. Murray. End of an awful season, but he doesn't live too far away from where the tournament's taking place. So he gets a call yesterday at 2 p.m. saying, Here, listen, Murray, Federer's had to pull out of this final against Djokovic. Can, can you come along and play an exhibition match? Yeah, yeah. What's, what's the Bunsen on this? Yeah. Is what Andy Murray said immediately. <laughs> to which he was told, There is no Bunce. There yeah. is no Bunsen burner. So he comes along, earner. plays an exhibition set For against Djokovic. I was impressed with that detail. He also had to partner John McEnroe in a doubles match against Pat Cash and Tim Henman. Mm. This is how the year ends for Andy Murray. Sounds like fun. I wouldn't mind doing that. Well, yeah, funny you say that because, and I'm not having a go with the tennis right here. I really love tennis as a sport, but only in tennis, I think, could the uh, one of the two star turns before final come out, announce that he's injured, can't play yeah. to the, the crowd. Lowy. And then, for the first time ever in his career, 1,220-odd matches, only in tennis would the crowd react with, Roger, Roger, we love you, Roger, your poor back, it's okay. It's very (laughs) genteel, isn't it? And then Andy Murray will come in. Sure, we'll get, um, oh, what were the old... The old guy, the guy uh, Henri Leconte. Henri Leconte, he's always uh, playing uh, a little bit of what's the, the guy we the... interviewed years ago. Oh, Ili Nastasi. Ili Nastasi, Henri Leconte, and um, Virginia Wade. Yeah, get... and Andy Murray. And, and everyone loves this. Everyone loves this. Is, this is absolutely amazing. This is a bit of fun. Like they might as well just have, um, they might as well just have an episode of a question sport or something. Lots I mean, of, that's, that's basically what we're talking. Lots about Lots of Monkino chat to come in our second captain's football podcast. That's. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. 
Pretty big week of football it was, Alan. Uh, I don't know if you, if you need me to, to tell you that. Uh, Celtic Park, Friday. Ibrox Stadium on Saturday. That was, that was my schedule. Um, Rangers Alloa, I believe. Rangers against Alloa. Uh, what an experience it was. It it was actually... I'm really glad that I went. Yeah. I mean, there were other things I could have done. People said, like, go walk around the Merchant City or take a stroll around the West End. This is things that you can do in Glasgow. Um, but I decided to go to Ibrox and check it out. And I even got to see the Finiston Cran on the way. Mm-hmm. So I've got to say, overall... What an amazing weekend it was in Glasgow. But there were some other football matches on, including a win for Liechtenstein, uh, a draw for San Marino. <laughs> what <laughs> so, a day, what a week for the Minnows. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll talk about a few of those things. And Martin O'Neill's press conference. Also. Martin O'Neill's press conference. Uh, we're going to, yeah. We'll, so I don't want to that up too much because it might not be particularly Martin O'Neill's press conferences are usually not very interesting. <laughs> um, he's, uh, he's done a lot of press conferences and I suppose he's at some point reached the conclusion that the less interesting press conferences, the better. And this is something that Roy Keane uh, apparently dis- might have learned himself but has decided not to employ that knowledge this time around. Emma Malone is ready to talk Ireland and... Uh, well, Keen, largely, Emmett, yourself, and uh, uh, you wrote an article on it today. You put out the full transcript of his, I suppose you'd call it a verbal uh, altercation with uh, a couple of journalists. The other papers did similarly. Um, the reaction to this, I have to say, even when I posted a link to this story on, on Twitter, was a mix between a certain amount of, um, of fatigue, maybe, regarding Keane, but also there was this, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is just sensationalist, uh, sensationalist media stuff. Yeah, I don't get that. I've seen the sensationalist charge. I don't quite get it. Um, what, what we've done, and, and to be honest, I mean, I, I haven't seen the other papers uh, today yet, so I don't know what other people have done with it, so I can't comment. In the Irish Times case, in my case, you know, um, I think we've just laid out the facts there. I think if people read the, the, the intro to it, it credits uh, Keane with having done a good press conference, having made a lot of interesting points, having reacted with some humour uh, to a couple of the questions, and good-naturedly to an interruption from... Um, uh, the lads from the um, uh, Irish amputees team. I think it's all it's all pretty positive stuff. And then and then this question gets asked. And and often, I mean, there there, there are a couple of points to be made here in terms of the way press conferences work. First of all, he uh, it, it, they're divided into uh, broadcast, uh, and then the broadcast people leave, uh, which the print people are in for. Okay, and uh, the broadcast people leave, and the um, print people are, are left. And the purpose for that is so that the print people have something for the next day's paper that doesn't go out and broadcast. Uh, earlier on and is essentially sort of seen as dead for the next morning. Uh, In this case, um, I think it was Sky News asked about the incident at the hotel last week. Um, uh, Keane said no, you know, he wasn't going to comment on it and it was quite quickly left there. Um, At the end of the press conference, you know, generally what happens is if you're going to ask something that may cause a problem with an interviewee, pretty much anyone and, and, and Joaquin would obviously be kind of high on the list of people you may be about to cause a problem with um, because he, he, there is this underlying disdain that he has for the media and he reacts badly to some questions. Um, 
you do it at the end because uh, everyone else has asked their questions. And I was still actually trying to reopen the, the issue of Roy Keane, or Robbie Keane rather, uh, at the end of the press conference. Um, and I was trying to ask a question and, and instead uh, Phil Quinn from the, the Mail uh, wanted to ask this question about uh, the um, dealing, um, the, the, the Martin O'Neill thing. And, the, and essentially the Martin O'Neill question is, and, you know, and, and quite a few people have touched on it in print and, and on, on in broadcast media over the last uh, week or so, that, you know, there are so many stories uh, involving Roy Keane that is he, you know, uh, a, a major distraction to uh, Martin O'Neill's ability to do the job or, you know, and, and, you know, he asks that question and you can, uh, the, the question is there. I mean, my only reservation about the question is really that um, he, he, he remarks that uh, I'm expecting the stare here. And, that, you know, I'm, you know uh, Keane does sometimes stare people down when they ask questions or, you know, when he's not happy with them or um, it does happen. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that it's entirely appropriate to reference it in a question like that. I think it's inviting a bad uh, a reaction. But otherwise, I don't think there's anything hugely unreasonable in the question. I think it's entirely reasonable for Keane to either say he doesn't want to answer uh, or that that's a question for um, uh, Martin O'Neill. Uh, he does the latter, um, but it's more the tone of, of his reaction. Straight away, the tone of uh, his, his demeanor changes, uh, the tone of his replies changed, everything that's gone before. Um, as I say, the, the incident last Wednesday has been touched on previously, and he just kind of shrugs and says he doesn't want to talk about it. That's kind of accepted. If, in this instance, he had um, said that more or less the same thing again, or left it as it's a question for Martin O'Neill, I think that's it. The press conference just ends and nothing else happens. But um, but he reacts quite badly. The journalist ends up um, uh, very quickly um, having to sort of justify his position. I mean, Rukin's very initial reaction uh, includes his first answer, uh, which actually starts before the question is finished, includes the line, do you think you have a right to sit here and ask me anything you want and get an answer? Well, to get an answer bit is, you know, you know, it's a fair enough point. I don't think, you know, we expect to get an answer to everything. But it's a press conference, and it was not an outrageous um, question. And partly, Keane here is a victim of the fact that much of the time, most of the time, he's interesting and insightful. And, and there's every chance that if you ask him something like this, he might go completely the other way and say something that's really interesting about it. But on this occasion, he takes huge exception. And I think that's down in, in, in no small part to an underlying disdain um, that he has and contempt that he has for, for the media. And that, that becomes apparent as the exchange goes on. And I think there's two things that are relevant there. One is that actual disdain to the media, which is you know, people can think we're just we're, we're just feeling sorry for ourselves. I don't think that's the point. But there is also a kind of wider application about his general demeanour or his ability to cope with people who he has baggage with, whether that be John Delaney or whether it was his employers at Sunderland or whether it's players who he's had run-ins in the past. And this is an issue. I think that's an issue. And I think all we're saying is this is the way he reacted to this. And, and, and this gives some sort of insight into Roy Keane's character. Is, for, for all of that, I think it's, it's, it's balanced to have it in the paper. Yeah, is, I, I, I take that as, as, uh, as fair comment, Emma. But is it a little bit uh, reading too much into, uh, into this bit of tension between himself and a journalist to, to kind of say that well, this is also a window into how he deals with people and you know how he might manage people. I mean, is it isn't a, a lot of managers down the years have uh, have had issues with journalists, and I, I can imagine most people listening probably. In fact, a lot of people who when I tweeted a link to your article, uh, a lot of the reaction was just ah, oh, you know, this is kind of boring. Who cares about about? Um, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a non-issue. Fair enough. 
that's absolutely fair enough. If people are bored by it, then that's grand. I mean, I, I like to think there's plenty else in the paper to read, you know. Um, they don't have to, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's outrageous or sensationalist or over the top to put this in. I mean, Christ on, you know yourself, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of what comes out of these things is of, of, of minimal interest. You know, players are media trained or, you know, you end up, you know, doing um, uh, interviews w- w- with, uh, with with managers or, uh, I mean, Martin O'Neill is, 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 is quite good to deal with, but uh, a, a great deal of the time he spends his way joking his way around questions and not answering them at all. Um, I think that this is an interesting, I think personally it's an in- insight into, um uh, Keen's demeanor and how he deals with people. Whether, whether I'm, I'm not saying you should necessarily read in. I'm not saying that you know this is how he deals with players or how he dealt with the owner at Sunderland or whatever. But I do think that this is it says something about his his inability to go into a fairly kind of controllable situation and keep and, it simple. And, and keep, and keep it. Sim- I mean, I, I was yeah, sitting, I was sitting and, there and, as well. And I mean, I totally agree that you can tell a lot. Or I mean. He, it would suggest a lot to me, the, the reaction that I saw to what seemed, sounded to me like an innocuous question. In fact, a question that he'd already more or less been asked. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he makes a couple of... I mean, he does say that it's... it's um, look, he, he does say on the one hand that it's a question from Ireland. I think that's fine. If he leaves it at that, 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 that's it. Uh, he also... But he also just shows this kind of outright contempt um, for, I mean, this kind of you people sort of sort of attitude, um, which which I, you know I think is interesting. I mean, this is a guy who many people talk about as a future manager of the team, or you know, going back into big jobs in England or whatever. And this is an issue for him. Even his inability to deal with the press is a, a, an issue for him. But but you know, I think you can well you can judge for yourself whether there's a, there, there are kind of wider indications there of, of uh, how he deals with people. But. I mean, uh, yeah, the, uh, perhaps even there, there's an issue here that, that it, it, you know, running this out in print um, doesn't quite capture the nature of it because, you know, but his answers quickly become, you know, the tone of his voice becomes quite shrill. He's quite, you know, he's really agitated. He's really irritated. Um, for something that, that was just, it was just this, like, no comment kind of question if he didn't fancy answering it. Um, but as I say, I, I mean, you know, you hear questions like Arsene Wenger at Arsenal being, been asked rather really kind of more more um, cutting stuff or more you know more biting stuff than this on a weekly basis at his press conferences and just answering them and being and being admired by by, by journalists for the for the way that he uh, he responds. Um, I'm not necessarily saying Keen has to do that, although I, I really enjoy his press conferences. They, they tend to be really interesting, and a lot of what he said yesterday about what he viewed as the kind of failings in the performance on 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 Friday, or you know, the kind of or, or perhaps the way that they had been over those failings had been overblown in the reports and the criticism that has, has followed the game. It's all really good stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but but I do think that this is all pertinent. And there were a couple of interesting strands to that, Emmett. Um, one of them was to do with Robbie Keane and what he'd had to say after the game. You you said yourself you, you wanted to ask him more about that. Um, and the other had to do with Martinez and his very overprotective attitude to these delicate Everton superstars <laughs> who are also very important players for Ireland. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I thought the stuff on, 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 on Martinez and Everton was great. You know, I mean, it's, it's rare that, uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I'm sure a full and frank account of what goes on behind the scenes. But, 
you know, it gave some sort of insight into uh, into the, the tensions that exist there between a club and uh, and the international manager and uh, and um, the way that you know both sides perhaps kind of try and protect their patch and the fact that he was suggesting that that the two sides in this instance might have might have to sit down. I mean, he wasn't saying that he reached that point yet. Might have to sit down at some point and kind of iron out their differences or come to some arrangement or whatever. It was an interesting thing. It was it was, I mean, it was a very positive thing from a reporter's point of view. And I, I think it would be terrible if this ends up that you know King. Uh, you know, uh, doesn't doesn't do press in the future, but it's but it's clear it's been a kind of um, it's it's the elephant in the room every time he talks to us in terms of his his, his view of us uh, being so negative. I mean, at the very very first pitch side he did. Um, I mean, there's a kind of process of you know, sort of normalisation that has gone on here from the time that he did the original major press conference when he when he he and O'Neill were kind of unveiled and and uh, Keane did a first press conference out in the Grand Hotel a few days after uh, O'Neill had been unveiled or when they came in for the, a few days after they came in for their first match. Um, we've gone then to the kind of pitch side uh, updates that uh, assistant managers have tended to do from time to time to kind of fill in gaps or sort of the manager isn't talking to you every day and that's been a very positive thing but the very first one he did of those which is kind of back at the start of the year the opening question was any news and this was you know or something very similar to that and that was kind of intended as a shorthand for like you know any hamstring pulls or injury news or you know any player updates or whatever and he looked at the guy and and, and said, like, in relation to what? As if, as if he was being asked about the state of his marriage. You know, it was it was a remarkable kind of moment. And uh, and somebody had to clarify that it was like injury news uh, in relation to players. And uh, and he just kind of snapped out of it then and went, oh yeah, okay, right, and, and carried on. I mean, his default position regarding us is 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 very negative. And okay, like as a, I, you make the point on that you can't, you maybe you can't take much much from that. Maybe you can't. I know. We put it out there, and it's for people to decide uh, on whether they can or not. But I don't think he could have. Um, I don't think he could have come away from that press conference yesterday feeling that 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 what had happened wasn't worth uh, wasn't worth reporting on. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's agreed. All right, and we'll see what Martin O'Neill has to say uh, a little bit later on today. Listen, Emma, great stuff. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thanks. Can you certainly share the share Emma's view there? This is. Uh, yeah, you did allude to it early on. This potentially an important story that it is an insight. It's uh, even though, as I mentioned right at the uh, quite early on in the program, most a lot of people aren't don't seem too interested in it, or also either are not interested in it, say they're not interested any, in any more in Roy Keane having an argument with a journalist, or say that it's just sensationalist. It's journalists creating headlines. Sorry, when I read a comment by somebody online underneath an article saying they're not interested in what the article is, I think that person needs to sit down and have a think about what they've just done. You know what I mean? Um, what what they're doing, if, if they're sincere about not being interested in it, which I've got to say I don't believe, they've got to think about what they're doing. Because by commenting, not only clicking on, but actually commenting on an article, they are, you know, if, if uh, the media was seriously all about clickbait, they, they are saying, they're basically saying, more of this, please. Please, more of this. Whatever that's, whatever the subject was that this was all about, I want more. Not only will I click on it, but I'm going to comment on it. Then I'm going to click on it a bunch more times in order to read what people say in response to my comment. <laughs> you know, so so that's that's an that's an internet goldmine uh, that you're setting up there. If you really aren't interested in the story, then definitely don't comment on it. And I would have assumed don't read it because you're not interested in in the story in the first place. I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff. I mean, I know maybe it sounds a bit like you know, oh, the journalists are circling the wagons here. Maybe to an extent, you know, I feel like I've got to stand up for my my colleagues in this noble trade uh, because you know you got a lot of people out there saying, oh, the journalists have crawled out of their gutter 
uh, to have a go, you know, and to provoke, uh, oh, they, they just want to provoke things. There was no provocation. There was literally just a question. That's the remarkable thing about it. It's not a, it's not a provocation to ask a question. It turned, it, it, it turned out that Keane saw it as a provocation, but that in itself is sort of the story. I mean, every so often in life, people are going to say things to you that you don't like. Maybe they don't even, maybe they don't even read it. It doesn't have to intentionally be an insult. Sometimes someone says something to you and you're looking at them and you're thinking, I didn't like that. But do you fly off the handle at that moment? Or do you, do you maybe kind of just swallow it a little bit and move on? We were talking about the Irish players letting the occasion get the better of them on Friday night. Uh, But the boxing on Saturday, guys, I don't know if you saw this, but when Matthew Macklin was defeated, unfortunately, by uh, a, a better than expected Argentinian opponent, it was a really, it was a poor performance by Macklin. He was exhausted and, was knocked out fairly spectacularly in the tenth round, and was talking afterwards about having to reassess whether or not he can he can keep going with his career. Quite quite a few defeats now, um, and a few of them are in world title fights. But this was one that uh, looked particularly devastating. But aside from that, there was a, a fight on the undercard, a grudge match, which mm-hmm. is always important for boxing. Yeah. Between Anthony Fitzgerald Ken and Gary is Gary Spike O'Sullivan. So. Fitzgerald, Sullivan's in the ring um, sort of sauntering around the place looking really cool affecting this air of calm Fitzgerald is coming in already a bit too pumped up you don't really want to be exhorting mm. the crowd but he was doing a bit of that so he's jumping into the ring doing that then Spike meets him with a full on dunt to the chest shoulders him bang yeah. knocks him back two feet which you don't actually see that often in boxing it's not really uh, you see it quite a bit in the junior B football yeah. game but not in boxing. Now, the best way to react to that is, well, a bit of head-to-head is fine, but probably the best way to react to that isn't what Anthony Fitzgerald did, which was practically get on the top rope, Ultimate Warrior style, mm. and exhort the crowd to get behind him. Look at this affront to the great noble uh, science of boxing, sweet science of boxing. Uh, he was r- r- ratcheting the crowd up to uh, to 10, to 11 on yeah. the excitement scale, and was subsequently knocked out after about 40 seconds. That's why you don't go up That's, to 11. No, on. you don't. You've got to keep it up at around 8 or 9. Eight, and never get eight that and a half, maybe but you don't want to go any higher than Katie that. Taylor starts a world championship cam- campaign tomorrow, by the way, in South Korea. The organisers there decided to wait until the start of the competition to tell everyone there'd be no seeding. Uh, the Irish camp seemed to be under the impression that there, this was a seeded tournament. Now, it means Katie's due to fight Sofia Ochigava. Remember the miserable oh, yeah, yeah. Remember the miserable woman from the uh, who took her defeat very badly from the um, Olympics? Indeed. She's due to fight her in the quarterfinals. Uh, which it, she which was, it, she was in the final, right? That was yeah, the that show, was the yeah. one. Yeah, really cagey fight, very, very tight fight, and she mm. felt that she'd won it, and it was given to Katie on reputation. Essentially, is what Achigaba. She didn't even have to do an interview, Achigaba. You knew by her demeanor that that's mm. what she felt she in the. Is her, is but when when is that? It starts tomorrow. She's not fight. Katie has to fight another fight before that. But if she gets to the quarterfinal and Achigaba gets to the quarterfinal, that's when uh, that that's when they will face off with each other. Johnny Waterson is over there for the Irish Times. Do, you know when that, do we know when that quarterfinal is going to be? And not that I'm assuming Katie Taylor and uh, Archie just, are both just, going just, to Just read Johnny's work. Johnny's going to be doing a lot of great work over there. But he said today, when the governing body, the AIBA, were asked whether there was a reason the ranked, the ranked boxers were not seeded, the emailed answer was a cheery, no seeding this time, no particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave you on that. Good luck to Katie. Thanks very much for listening today. And have a look at our website, secondcaptains.com. We have got the football podcast has to come later so loads more on O'Neill on Ireland it won't just be about Roy Keane in, in that James program. McCarthy as well. James McCarthy yeah it's a, j- really what the hell's going quite on quite why there? James McCarthy wasn't playing on Friday night anyway we'll get to that in that show thanks Kieran. thank you Owen thank you Ken thanks Ken thank you Kieran. thank you Owen thanks for listening
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.